episode 80, Long Hard Journey. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a May 6th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. among the scattered islands of the Philippines. Along with native Filipinos, American forces fought to defend the islands from a Japanese invasion. The battle did not go well, and the American surrender led to a horrifying POW journey known as the Bataan Death March. Among the soldiers that scraped by to exist was James Hughes, a Topeka native and army colonel. Join curator Laurel Fritsch and me as we examine a pair of shoes worn by Hughes during this harrowing journey. Then, we hunt down public enemy number one when we connect William Allen White to Bonnie and Clyde. This bank-robbing duo fascinated the American public during the Great Depression with their criminal ways. Did William Allen White, a newspaper man from Emporia, Kansas, break the story on this Romeo and Juliet with a getaway car? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Long Hard Journey. I keep you on my mind both day and night. And happiness I've known proves that it's right Because you're mine I walk the line Good morning, Laurel. Good morning, Merle. Today we are discussing a set of Japanese gettas that belong to James Hughes of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, he actually picked them up in Okinawa, Japan during World War II after an incredibly difficult journey through the Philippines. Uh, the shoes, which get us our shoes, and we'll get into it a little bit more, um, have a simple flat wood sole. Uh, the soles are mounted on two short, I don't know, it's like the heel they're or like a heel platforms. at the front. And, yeah, they're like platform shoes. Each shoe has a braided fiber thong to affix to the foot. So it's kind of a brief description of what they are. Uh, as I said, they're known as gettas. What is a getta? Well, you kind of already did a good job of explaining what they look like. Um, but basically, the they are sort of a precursor to the flip-flop. They are a little different in the sense that they have the toe thong in the center of the sandal as opposed to the way we have it where it's a little bit offset right now. So does that mean there's not necessarily a left getta and a right getta? That's correct. They are matching. or They're exactly identical, which in a one way is kind of nice, but... Also, a little bit uncomfortable for the wearer. Um, and the main thing that distinguishes them is that they have a small platform of about two inches. And the idea or the concept is that they are actually comfortable because you can sort of rock as you walk. So even though they are made of this hard wood, which you would think would be very uncomfortable, because supposedly that you are sort of rocking as you walk, they are supposed to be very comfortable. Although I myself have never tried wearing one, so I, I can't um, give you a personal recommendation on that or personal opinion on it. Um, but they are really interesting and they're a very traditional form of Japanese footwear. Uh, these shoes belong to James Hughes, 
who was Hughes and what was he doing in Asia, or more specifically, the Philippines? Right. James Hughes comes from a long family of world of war veterans. His father served in World War One and things like that, and so he got involved in the military quite young, and he ended up serving in World War One in France, and he was mostly in the artillery department there. He wasn't very particularly high-ranking. Um, and so then it just made sense then when World War II came along that he again, you know, enlisted and was serving in the military there. Um, and basically they just posted him to the Philippines. And he was a Topeka native, correct? Yes, he was a Topeka native. He married someone from Topeka. They raised two boys. Now down to the brass tacks of the shoes, or what's the really interesting part of the story. Um, in 1941, the Japanese invaded the, Philippines, the Philippine Islands as part of their policy of expansion, which they exercised during World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, the Battle of the Philippines ensued ending with a massive surrender of U.S. and Filipino forces to the Japanese. How did this lead to what became known as the Bataan Death March? The Philippines were very, very important for the Japanese. They it really represented um, Imperial Japan's main focus. Um, the Southwest Pacific was very important because they were so rich in resources. And so the Japanese really viewed the islands as very strategically important. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sort of put it number one on their list in terms of things that they wanted to do and things that they wanted to invade. It was also high, I mean, it was high profile and, and um, high profile because of the Philippine-U.S. relationship. So it had a lot of symbolism to it, too, if the Japanese could take that, take an island like that. Right. And they basically invaded the Philippines just shortly after they bombed the U.S. ships in Pearl Harbor. So they really had things planned out well. And so the Battle of the Philippines led to a huge U.S. surrender, correct? Yes. Um, it was actually the largest surrender in American and Filipino military history. So can you tell me a little bit about the Bataan Death March? That, that was once the U.S. forces were captured, I mean, they were forced to march to some prison camps, correct? The uh, main troops surrendered on April 9th. The majority of the troops surrendered on April 9th. So there was a combination of both U.S. and Filipino soldiers that were fighting, about 12,000 U.S. and about 64,000 Filipino. And so they were all captured, and the Japanese sort of rounded them up and decided to march them up the coast of Bataan to a place called Camp O'Donnell. Mm -hmm. and, and just, just to be clear, Bataan is a peninsula, or it's like a region of the Philippines, right? Yes. And that's where a large, or in that area, it's near Manila Bay, mm -hmm. which is, um, Manila is the capital of the Philippines. So that's where a lot of the U.S. forces were located along Manila and on, on the Bataan Peninsula. Right. So the Japanese just basically took over this camp that was stationed there and were able to use that as a hub then. Um, and so basically the march was marching these soldiers all up and down this island. Um, and it was a really brutal experience for the captives. They received almost no food or water, and they were beaten to keep moving. Um, they were often already weak from having fought for months and months and months and often very ill because they encountered diseases like malaria and other things like that. 
Um, and unfortunately, if they fell behind, the Japanese took no mercy on them and executed them. Mm-hmm. There's some horrific stories of, of Japanese guards driving by with bayonets,、um, pretty much executing at will、um, U.S. forces. And, and、uh, it is just awful. I mean, it's not uncommon for,、uh, for a conquering country to move POWs from one prison to another. But it is uncommon the extreme measures that the Japanese、um, put these POWs through. And it's interesting because the Japanese had always prided themselves on being very civilized and having such civil treatment for prisoners of war.、Um, and, and there's some claims, I think, that the, with, the, with Bataan that the Japanese high command really had no idea what was going on. Um, and there w a s others that claim that it was, you know, it was ten- intentionally done. So it's very interesting. What I think is even more interesting is all these U.S. and Filipino forces were captured, but the Filipino forces were all given amnesty、mm. and sent home because the Japanese were trying to essentially control the island and control the civilian population. But so it remained strictly on this, the U.S. forces. What happened to Hughes following this massive surrender? Well, after all the U.S. Source,、uh, all of the U.S. soldiers surrendered. Basically, for a long time, nobody knew what happened to him. It was about nine months, actually, in fact, before anyone knew what happened to him.、Um, but what ended up happening was he was rounded up along with all these other soldiers and、um, marched from wherever he was captured to a place called San Fernando. And there he was loaded into a boxcar. Which was a typical thing for them to do, for the Japanese to do. And these boxcars were initially intended to hold only about 30 or 40 men. But、um, from there, he was transferred to Camp O'Tonnell. And、um, it was just a really terrible experience in Camp O'Donnell. But fortunately for Hughes, he didn't spend a great deal of time there, which is excellent.、Um, And then, after about 30 days there, he and a lot of other generals and colonels were transferred to a series of other camps, kind of all over the Philippines. And it was at one of those camps that he was heard on the Japanese radio. And what he said was No news for over a year now. Everything goes all right with me. If you have a chance to send a package, please send me a warm field jacket and half a pound of coffee. And so it's Who very. Who is he talking to?、Um, basically, the Japanese sort of wanted to prove that, you know. That prisoners were being were, treated yes, fine. Exactly, that、um, people were being well treated. And so they kind of had a number of people come and talk on the radio. So. Whether those statements were actually his, whether he basically read what the Japanese told him to, I really don't know.、Um, but in any case, it, it's a very strange and odd message for him to have sent. And this was just picked up by the U.S. radio broadcasting systems within the area. So it's not like it was broadcast over NBC or something like that in the United States. It was just something that was sort of picked up on the airwaves that the Japanese intended the U.S. military to hear. For months, the Hughes family、uh, thought he was dead. Do you know much about his return journey? And how did he end up with these shoes that we're looking at today? All right.、Um, well, when we sort of left Hughes, he was in one of these camps. And eventually, what happened was that he was imprisoned on what is now referred to as a Japanese hell ship. 
And these hell ships were used to transport troops to Japan and to China in order to work for the Japanese war industry. And so he, James, was taken to a factory at the edge of the Gobi Desert in Manchuria, China, where he basically spent the rest of the war. And Russian soldiers then ended up liberating the camp in August of 1945. Oh, so he was rescued by the Red Army? That's correct. And Jeez, talk about from the pot into the frying pan. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and by that point, by the time he was liberated, he had been captured for a total of three years and five months. Oh, my gosh. Which is absolutely incredible. And it, it's just a very harrowing story. So after that, the Russian soldiers, they transported a lot of men from China to a navy, to Port Arthur, a navy transport. And from there, Hughes was taken to Okinawa, Japan. And during World War II, they really were pretty good about making sure that troops who had been through these terrible experiences were slowly reacclimated into U.S. culture and things like that. So he spent a long time both in Okinawa and then also in other places like Manila and things like that before he actually went home via ship. And so we believe that it was in Okinawa during his time there that he picked up these gettas. I'm not really sure why he picked them up. Maybe it was just something neat, fun to pick up for his wife, for his family. I'm not entirely certain. So you don't know if he actually wore them or if he just brought them home as a souvenir? Yeah, I'm not entirely certain of that. The library and archives here just recently acquired his diaries covering four years of his time when he was captured. And I haven't even had a chance to go look at them, they're so new, in fact. But it's very exciting that we have them there because it will really complete the rest of this story and we'll really have a full picture of all of his time and all of his experiences during World War II. So he kept a diary of his captivity? Yeah, during a certain time. And we actually have that, that you can go look at it? That's correct. That's amazing. We just acquired it. So. Well, as I said, uh, the getta, it is the traditional form of Japanese footwear. Um, and it, it resembles something between a clog and a flip-flop. Um, so I was curious, you know, if this, if, this, if this traditional form has some modern variations. Um, so I'm going to throw out some ideas, you know, if, if there's any Geta, Geta manufacturers out there, you know, use these as you will, uh, of some variations for the Geta. And I just want your opinion, whether you think they'll fly or not. All right, all right. Okay, first, I think we could have a tap dancing Geta. I think it would be kind of cool. Kind of put a, a steel band on the two, uh, on the platform portion, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm a little concerned if you've only got the, you know, if you've only got the thong holding it to your foot that it might go flying off, but... Uh, well, I think it would be pretty, pretty worth it. I mean, I could really see Gene Kelly dancing to Singing in the Rain with these, you know, steel tipped gettas. I think it would be very cool. I agree. Skill. Um, then there is the deck getta. <laughs> You know, kind of like your deck shoe, something a little casual, a little dressy. Um, uh, maybe you know, you know, you weren't worn for hanging out on the deck of your preppy junk or your, yeah. you know, your, your your sailboat. Yeah, I think you could talk to Abercrombie and Fitch about that one. I know or they, Calvin Klein. They might be on. They might be with it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Finally, of course, this is my favorite variation: is the air getta. 
Mm. You know, I know it sounds preposterous, but you take the geta and you you add a small pump to it, right? And then you <laughs> you add that pump to some airbags somewhere on the shoes. It doesn't even really have to have any effect on the shoe. It's more of a psychological thing. Right. So you know, that's just my idea. I, it may sound like a scam, but I think it could work. Yeah, I could. You know, I suppose use that in uh, some kind of bizarre form of basketball or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Can All right. Well, Laurel, thanks for talking to us, talking about um, Mr. Hughes and the gettas he wore uh, while he was in Asia. Well, it's really been my pleasure. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Public Information Officer Teresa Jenkins. Say hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> and Assistant Registrar, Michaela Zimmerman. Hello. Today, we are connecting William Allen White to perhaps the most notorious of U.S. crime duos, Bonnie and Clyde. During the Depression, these bank-robbing lovebirds fascinated the American public as they went on a killing spree in the central United States. So first, we'll start with a little general background. Bonnie Parker was born in Rowena, Texas in 1918. She was an honor student in high school. Uh, she married at 15 years old. That didn't work out. Um, she was kind of a Shirley Temple-like uh, figure when she was young. Um, and later, she became quite fashionable. Clyde Barrow was born near Dallas, Texas in 1909. Poor farming family, and uh, he entered the criminal justice system at the ripe age of 17. Ooh. By most accounts, the two met through a mutual friend in 1930. They formed a gang, the Barrow Gang, which com was comprised of the two and a couple other associates and um, some of Clyde's brothers. Um, and in 1932, they started traveling through Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri, robbing banks and small stores. Um, in total, they are believed to re be responsible for the death of at least nine police officers, uh, among several other murders. In 1933, the gang was chased out of their apartment in Joplin, Missouri. Um, so that's not too far from here. They even uh, At one point, they were in Platte City, Missouri, which is just outside of Kansas City. Um, in Joplin, uh, the police recovered a camera that had rolls uh, of pictures taken by the gang uh, that revealed shocking photographs <laughs> of the young, trendy-looking Bonnie smoking a cigar, oh Freudian, <laughs> and flashing an automatic rifle. Um, these images, this is what really captivated the public. This is what spread their image throughout the U.S. And finally, in 1934, the two were killed during one of many gun battles that they were part of, a gun battle with law enforcement in Louisiana. Uh, they were shot while sitting in their 1932 Ford Model B. Um, today, you can see that bullet-riddled car on exhibit at the Gold Rush Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. Wow. So there's a little background on them. And, Teresa, I believe you have a solution. You found a way to connect uh, White to the... Uh, to Bonnie and Clyde. I sure did. Well, as you said, Bonnie and Clyde were driving a stolen Ford when they were gunned down in Gippsland, Louisiana. And Henry Ford designed the Ford V8. Although he was a brilliant inventor and he was a man of vision, he was not able to steer clear, pardon the pun, of problems created when he made his political beliefs public. He blamed the Jews for World War I and he made some anti-Semitic slurs. Yikes. Nice. Yeah, not, not smart from a marketing perspective there. William Allen White wrote of Ford and his comments um, in saying, it is a sad commentary on humanity that Ford's great wealth has concealed his mental sloth 
and incapacity to think. Don't sugarcoat it, William. <laughs> I know, William Allen White wow. tearing up Henry Ford. Yeah. You know what? That that is. I think that is kind of impressive because Ford was a wealthy, powerful man, and not too many people that while he was alive, there wasn't a lot of people that were bringing up the fact that he was a bit anti-Semitic and somewhat friendly to Nazis. Mm -hmm. uh, people didn't really talk about it a lot when he was alive, except for White, apparently. <laughs> Uh, so there you have, from William Allen White to Bonnie and Clyde. Nice job, Teresa. Thank you. Uh, Nikayla, I believe you also have a solution. I do. And mine also includes a nefarious character, Joan Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> so, as many people know, there was a film made about Bonnie and Clyde that starred Faye Dunaway as Bonnie. And we also know that Faye played Joan Crawford in the movie that probably ruined most of our childhoods, <laughs> Mommy Dearest. It and didn't really bother me. <laughs> no wire hanger. What? And that scrubbing on the bathroom floor? <laughs> Yikes. Okay. So Joan Crawford um, was the daughter-in-law of Douglas Fairbanks. She was married. One of her many husbands was Douglas Fairbanks Jr., so Douglas Fairbanks was, was he her. the Pepsi? Was he the, the Pepsi no, CEO? I, that's his fourth. That's her fourth husband. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm straight. <laughs> that's right. That's number four. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and um, as we know from previous podcasts, Douglas Fairbanks met William Allen White in the 1920s. So. Bonnie wow. to Faye to Joan to Douglas Fairbanks to William Allen White. That is a whole cast of crazy yes. characters yes. right there. <laughs> That's nuts. Well, in addition to your solution, Nikayla, I believe you also have uh, a little bit of feedback to share with us. Yes, I do. In the last episode, we connected William Allen White to the Jolly Green Giant, as you well remember. And this was at the request of Rebecca from Saskatchewan. She gave us a few clues that included the Mayo Clinic and Cosgrove Carson Cosgrove, but we couldn't piece them together. So today, Rebecca clarifies. She writes, both William Allen White and Dr. William Worrell Mayo were one of the founders of the Mayo Clinic, received honorary degrees from Northwestern. One of the people who later lived in Mayo's home in Lesur, Minnesota, was Carson Nesbitt Cosgrove, who eventually went on to found the Minnesota Valley Canning Company, mm -hmm. which became Green Giant. Their famous spokesman was the Jolly Green Giant. There you have it. Please keep up the good work on the podcast, Rebecca. That's pretty funny because when she lays it out, it just seems so easy to figure I know, out. So obvious, we were like yeah. mystified about what she was talking about. <laughs> well, nice job, Rebecca. And uh, Nikayla, I believe you also have our challenge for next month. Uh, yes, I do. Our staff just couldn't leave us alone, and we're requesting no more sports figures. Okay, so at the request of a staff member, we are connecting William Allen White to Brett Favre. This Mississippi native played as quarterback for the Green Bay Packers for years, but after he decided he was just too good to retire, he played his last year with the New York Jets. Uh, asterisk on that last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Though he may waver on retirement, this virtual machine does not waver on playing. Since being named a starting quarterback in 1992, Favre has never missed a game. Wow. That is pretty impressive. Impressive. He was that kid in school that got the award at the end of the year for <laughs> yeah. never missing. And I bet he had never had any trouble with chin-ups in the president's physical fitness challenge Probably either. Not. Probably not. Stupid Brett Favre. <laughs> so if you think you can connect William Allen White to the hero of Wisconsin, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. That concludes episode 80, Long Hard Journey. If you would like to see images of the gaitas worn by a survivor of the Bataan Death March, go to our website, kshs.org. 
To find out about our latest podcast postings or other new artifacts and photographs acquired by the Historical Society, check out our Facebook page and become our friend. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me examine an umbrella used to protect Abraham Lincoln while he addressed the residents of Utica, New York. The speech was part of a dangerous whistle-stop tour that took Lincoln to his inauguration under the threat of assassination. Was this umbrella bulletproof? Find out in two weeks. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Because you're mine, I walk the line. 